I want to talk to you about surviving the squeeze, and we're going to go back about 2,600 years to the Babylonian Empire, and we're going to meet primarily one teenager, but really there's four of them that are mentioned. They're teenagers. And the whole focus this morning is in the context of a culture trying to squeeze the faith out of four young people and how four young people desperately relied on God and resolved in their hearts that they belonged to Yahweh and nothing would move them from that commitment. And these young people today instruct us because we live in such a culture too that is trying to squeeze you, trying to pull what is best out of you for purposes that serve the world and not the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Today's message is about consecration, and it's not just for the young people today. It's for all of us. Daniel chapter 1. Scriptures say, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. And the Lord, Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed those vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. We're going to cover more in this chapter, but I'm going to leave off reading there in a very simple prayer. Holy Spirit, as we're instructed in our minds, orchestrate a shift in our hearts. Do not let us be satisfied with an intellectual grasp of this Bible passage. Go for our hearts. Be ruthless with us today. Be aggressive with us today. Take by your strong, omnipotent power charge of every renegade place in my heart and the hearts of the willing. Give us what you gave Daniel 2,600 years ago. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning.
It's probably best for me today just to get into the text. My heart is ridiculously stirred this morning, and the temptation is just to launch, but I'm going to welcome the Scriptures to really be the tip of the spear that it gets into our heart, and what the Holy Spirit has beyond, behind that tip is a shaft of truth and the, the wind that he's going to breathe on this lesson today. We live in a time very similar to that which Daniel and his friends were living in. It's 2,600 years ago in a different part of the world, but they could be superimposed upon each other and have many, many parallels. We live in a darkened age. You know that, right? We live in a decadent age. We're not making that stuff up. We live in an age that is characterized by a collective deadness. And I'm going to limit my thoughts this morning to the people of God in the United States of America. That's my home. That's where I serve. That's where I minister. That's where the majority of my influence for, for the glory of Jesus is exerted. And then I'm going to welcome the Holy Spirit even to bring it home right here to the families that comprise Newbridge Church. And then even within those families, I'm going to turn the microscope in just a little bit more. And I especially want to talk to you who are um, students. You're from middle school all the way up to college. And there's many of you in the room. And I want you to hear because I believe that the enemy is going after your generation with a terror and a ferocity and a strategy perhaps unlike any generation before you has seen. Because I believe, this is my belief, you can disagree with me if you would like, no harm, no foul. I believe that my children's generation, I have a 17-year-old and a 12-year-old, I believe their generation will be the last generation of leaders in the kingdom prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the enemy knows that, and I believe that is why he is waging all-out assault on your minds and your hearts to strip you out of the kingdom. And so when we go back in time, we're going back to Daniel's day. And we're going to see, first of all, in the first three verses, that Daniel and his friends were born in adversity. These were Hebrews. These were Jews. These were covenant people who belonged to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were born in adversity. And we see, first of all, that they were a generation that was living in a time where their homeland was invaded and destroyed by the enemy. Verse number one, it's very simple, that in the third year of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, here comes Nebuchadnezzar. He is the king of Babylon, and he came to Jerusalem, and the Bible says that he besieged it. It's a military term. And what it means is that Nebuchadnezzar came down to the city of Jerusalem, and outside of the walls of Jerusalem, he surrounded the entire city. History tells us that for a year and a half, Nebuchadnezzar's army encircled the city. Nobody got out without dying, and the people that were in were slowly being starved to death within the city walls. There was an opportunity for Nebuchadnezzar's army to cut off all supply, and so ultimately the people within the walls of the city were dying a slow death. Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar comes into the city, and he begins to take away captives. He begins to scour the people of the Jews, and he is giving the commission to his army leaders, and he says, I want you to find the noble ones. I want you to find the children who belong to parents of nobility. I want them to be flawless in their appearance. I want them to be peerless in their intellectual capacity. I want you to go and find out who is the best among the young that can be gotten out of the people of the Hebrews, and I want you to bring them back to Persia because I plan to make them mine. 
And so this was the captivity. This was the context of Daniel and those that we would call by more familiar names, although they're pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll let Daniel represent he and all of his friends. And they were taken away captive. They were stripped away from their families. They were instant orphans. They were put into a pagan culture that was filled with things that would have been vexing to their righteous souls. And as they were taken up to Babylon, they heard a language they had never spoken. They encountered smells of food they had never smelled. They saw sights that their pure eyes were never allowed to see when they were safe within the confines of Jerusalem. And yet Nebuchadnezzar the enemy had come And he had, in one stroke, put adversity as the context for the rest of their lives. Their lives would be lived out not in ease, not in comfort, not in familiarity. Daniel would grow to be an old man, and he would live out all of his years in the context of trouble and adversity. Though God blessed him in the midst of it, it nevertheless stands that Daniel was one who was living in a place where he didn't belong. Further into this, illustrating that they were born in adversity, you're going to see in verse number two that their very religion, Judaism, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was outlawed. The Bible says in verse two that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Don't miss that. God was allowing this trouble to come to Israel because Israel had strayed and worshiped for a very long time pagan gods. They had sacrificed their children under the gods of the Canaanites. Mark this down. You'll see this in biblical history. Every single nation that has ever practiced the murder of their children has been judged by God, including Israel. God didn't give Israel a free pass. He never gives a nation a free pass, a nation that sanctions the murder of the vulnerable, the innocent, the children, the unborn. And so he did that even to Israel, bringing trouble to them to break them of their idolatrous ways. But the Bible says when, in verse 2, when, when Nebuchadnezzar came down, he, he brought all of the vessels out of the temple, the choice vessels of gold and silver, and he brought them out of the temple of the Jews and took them up to uh, Babylon. And he set those vessels that were consecrated by God's design for the glory of God, for the purposes of the worship of Yahweh. Those holy vessels were taken from the temple of the Jews And they were moved up into Babylon, and there they sat in the various houses of worship to the pagan uh, deities of the Chaldeans, or to to the uh, Babylonian Empire. It's a a heartbreaking scene. Holy things that were no longer being regarded as holy by the Jews. God said, if you treat them with contempt, I will take that contempt that you treat them with, and I will put them in the hands of those who are truly contemptible. And so they went up, and there they were in pagan houses, and the Jews were not allowed to worship openly Yahweh. As a matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar would eventually put into order that he alone would be worshipped in the land. So these monotheistic Hebrews who once used to worship God in the beauty of holiness now were put into a pagan land where they weren't even allowed to whisper his name. And then... Their freedom, of course, was removed. Verse number three, I've already alluded to it. The king commanded Ashpenaz to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So this actually fulfilled a prophecy that was spoken against Hezekiah 100 years earlier. 
Hezekiah had welcomed uh, pagan kings in to see all of the riches, all of the bounty, all of the beautiful vessels and artifacts that belonged to God. Hezekiah, in a moment where he dropped his guard and he showed his wealth to pagan nations, a prophecy was given that your children will be taken away and the little ones will be taken away and these vessels will be taken away. And how many of you know God keeps his word? And so all of this was being fulfilled in the context of Israel's the downsizing of their obedience and their increase of their rebellion. And God knows how to discipline his children. He would not forsake them, but he would allow this captivity to find them. And by the way, when they returned eventually 70 years later from Babylon, Israel has never had a problem with idolatrous worship from then to this very day. God broke them of their idolatrous worship in the captivity in Babylon. But let's go further and let's focus in more specifically on Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends, I want you to picture the scene. They're literally taken away as slaves. Their freedom is gone. That was after some amount of time of enduring the the sieging of the city, but eventually they were removed and all they had was their lives. They lost everything. It wasn't really Daniel and his friends' fault. It was their parents' and grandparents' fault. The children reap what parents and grandparents sow. And the children reap it longer than parents and grandparents. And so they were taken away, and now they're placed into this this group that, that King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make the elite, the best of the best in Babylon. They would be trophies in his kingdom. Look who we've brought from the land of the Jews. Look who we've taken. Note their beauty. Note their prowess. Note their intellectual capacity. Note how they are wise and eloquent and strong and capable. Now they belong to us. We are Babylon. And so these young men were targeted because they had so much potential. And Nebuchadnezzar, as a crafty enemy, knew all he had to do was take all of the natural resources that were in these young people. He didn't want to destroy those abilities. He wanted to take and he wanted to prostitute them by turning them for his purposes to his God. I want to just say this as an aside. That's exactly what the enemy wants to do with my children and your children. He wants to take every good thing that God has placed in them, and he doesn't want to wipe it out. That will be his last resort, would be to wipe it out completely. He would much rather capture their minds, own their behaviors, increase and influence their appetites, so he could take all of that good that God put in them, and he could take that good and harness it for his purposes and his darkened kingdom. So that's what the context of all of this is about. But Daniel... And his friends, they were of a different spirit. There was something different about them. It begins with this very simple thing. Look at this. And young people hear me on this because some of you are so incredibly blessed and gifted and favored. And I know when we're young, we often take that stuff for granted. I'm asking you not to this morning. I'm asking you to take an inventory And consecrate yourself to the Lord with all that he has done for you, all that he has birthed in you, and all that he wants to do through you. This is a call, an unashamed call of consecration to all of us in this house. These guys were balanced with humility very quickly in verse 4. The Bible notes that they were physically blessed, and yet we find they were not conceited. Notice what it says in verse 4. Youths without blemish of good appearance. 
that reads very Shakespearean. Um, we, we would say today is, man, they were good-looking guys. I don't know all of the, the, the guys that are good-looking for young women now and who the new, but I remember a few years ago, Brad Pitt. So just make it Brad Pitt times 10, except he's saved, and except he loves God, and except he wants to live for the Lord, but now he's being pulled. And so they were good-looking. They had no blemishes. There were no scars. There was no disabilities. There was no deficiency. You look at them, and they're the best that, that Jerusalem had to offer. And so the enemy says, outwardly, they're perfect. When people look on them, they are naturally impressive. And yet these young men weren't conceited. You're going to find out in here that there's a major strategy against their identity, and these young men did not have their identity in the way that they looked. Let's remember that, by the way, 21st century American Christian, that our identity was never meant to be rooted in how we looked. You say, well, no problem, Jeff. Yeah, that's the 18-year-old good-looking person saying that. It gets harder as you get older, trust me. And we have whole industries in America that are generating billions of dollars because at the heart of so many people in our culture, their identity is what they see in the mirror and nothing more. And so when they don't like what they see in the mirror, they go after a change of looks because they're hoping for a preservation of identity. Well, Daniel and his friends were physically blessed, but they weren't conceited. They were also intellectually advanced, and yet they were not humanistic. The Bible describes them, and this is before they got to Babylon. It became revealed somehow that they were skillful in all wisdom, they were already endowed with knowledge, and they had understanding and learning. And by the way, that would have been in all things Hebrew. There wouldn't have been this desire among Orthodox kosher Hebrews uh, living in the 6th century B.C. to learn all the ways of the pagans, but they, their minds were given solely to God. Their hearts were about the Lord. Their songs were the songs of David. Their, their, their thoughts were, were um, framed up by the words of Moses and the historical writers. These were young people who were believers to the core. And they had minds that God had given them for the very purpose. God gives everybody a, a mind that has some capacity to absorb his goodness. We have the most precious person in, in our family somebody that you probably won't met, meet. Her mama's here today. Her name is Kelly. And Kelly has never been able to speak, and Kelly has ne never been able to move and run and can't lift her hands in worship and doesn't have the intellectual capacity that most of us have. She's been this way since she was a child, and she's just a little younger than Amy now. And Kelly... At just random moments, we know she's seeing something in the spirit that we can't see. She will laugh. She will smile. She will, in her own way, sing. And her mama, Darlene, posted a video of her doing this the other day. And I just watched it over and over again because I saw this young woman who doesn't have the capacity that we have, and yet with the, the capacity that she has, which by comparison is smaller, she's being entrusted to know the glory of God. And she sees. And I thought to myself, what capacity she's been given, God has enabled her 
to look into his kingdom and see things that you and I in all of our capacity may never see in this lifetime. But I'm saying that to say this. You have a capacity to think and an intellect and a mind, and that mind was meant to be a sponge to soak up all things kingdom. And then when that mind soaks in as much as a mind can soak in, God says, I will anoint you, I will dispatch you, I will call you, and I will pour out of you what I have poured into you. Use that mind not just to soak it up, but to articulate it out so that a world that doesn't know me may know me better. And so Daniel and his friends, they were intellectual, but they weren't humanistic. They were about to be educated in all the ways of Babylon. Babylon having just such a massive astrological um, sense of, of reality, pagan worship, sun, moon, and stars, and all sorts of sensual appetites that were attached to the worship of their gods Marduk and Bel and Nebo. And, and all of this is, is going to be pummeling these believers in their teens. And, and what's happening here is a backed up picture, the macro view, is that the enemy is saying, if this is the best that Jerusalem can offer up, the enemy says, much like he did with Job in that contest over Job's life, the enemy says, watch what happens when I squeeze these Hebrew youths and I'll pull out of them anything that God poured into them and they will use it for the gods of Babylon. So that's the question. What's going to happen with these young men? Well, they were also socially skilled, but they weren't elitist. Verse number four, they were competent. They were made competent to stand in the king's palace. And here we go. They were taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Listen here. This is a reprogramming, an intentional reprogramming of these young men. What the, father, what the, what the king was doing Nebuchadnezzar was doing is he's saying we've got to deprogram them from their monotheistic worship of the God of the Jews and we've got to reprogram them that that God is not real. All of our gods are and ultimately Nebuchadnezzar said actually in the end I want them to know that I'm their God. And so they, they went to instruct them not only the language of the Chaldeans but the literature. In other words don't read your Hebrew books anymore. Don't read your books on faith. Don't read Moses. Don't read David. Don't read the history of the people of Abraham. No, no, never read those things again. We are going to re-educate you. You know, school in this new school year. And by the way, I have a daughter in public school, so what I'm about to say is not a blanket statement condemning public schools. We have some godly public school teachers right here, and I thank God for Christians that move into public schools in places of influence and teaching and administration. I thank God for you. But what I'm going to say is I'm going to back the camera up a little bit. I'm going to say within each local school that may or may not be situated to do well for our children, there is a system that overlays it, the government school system. And in the midst of that school system, I promise you this, going well on four or five decades, there has been this intentionality of the system it is actually, the government school system isn't the actual system. It is the, the world system. The prince of the power of the air working to do what? To deprogram our children from a robust faith in Jesus Christ and to reprogram to trust in secular humanism, trust in humanity, trust in government. And it is aggressive. It is more aggressive now than when I was in school. I graduated 30 years ago from high school. And it is more aggressive now. And you think it's bad in the public school system. Wait till they go to university. Wait till they go to college. 
And, and listen, this is the amazing part. These Hebrew children, and Nebuchadnezzar knew this. If he could get their minds for the majority of them, that would be all it took. What he's going to find out is he, he, he ran up against his match with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because it wasn't simply that these four Hebrew young men were intellectually convinced. They were spiritually converted. They were convinced in their soul. It, it, listen, hear me on this. In conservative, evangelical, or even charismatic churches, when there is an emphasis on the word, and you're in a church like that this morning, I am preaching the word of God. The danger, however, is that we hear it, we intellectually process it, we acknowledge it as being true, we give a hearty amen, but it never moves from our mind and embeds itself in our soul. And so let me tell you what happens. When we're ministering, to, and we don't do this here, but this has happened all across the board in churches. We minister to children and we minister to students. We even minister to uh, college-age young people. And we say, if we can get them to understand the Romans road, and we can get them to pray, Jesus, come into my heart, and we can get them to get dunked in the baptistry, and then we can try to get them as busy as we can get them in the work of the Lord, then we've done a good job and we can give ourselves um, ecclesiastical high fives in the lobby as if our work is done. The problem is this, when we convince them of an, an intellectual grasp of the gospel, all it takes is a more reasonable or stronger intellectual argument to come and dislodge their intellectual assessment of the gospel. So if they're, if they're only converted in their minds, it is highly likely they're not converted at all. Because what happens is they, they are confronted with, with a professor that is slicker than their pastor or their parents. With, with a bombardment on their intellects with all sorts of pseudoscience, right. historical narratives, reinterpretation of the Bible, and an all-out assault against the God of the Christians. And it happens from classroom to classroom to classroom to classroom. And then by the end of freshman year, when they, not even the end, on Christmas break freshman year, they come back and their certainty about the gospel and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and his efficacious death and his living eternal resurrection, all of that has been watered down. And now they're not so sure anymore. What happened? Well, the enemy knows that if all they've got is an intellectual assessment, assent, to the gospel, then all the enemy has to do is come and dislodge that intellectual commitment with a greater intellectual argument. So Jeff, why are you telling us this? Well, I'm telling you this because some of your kids are going off to college. Some of your kids are entering the last years of high school, some of your grandchildren. And all of us can get away on Sundays with feeling very Christian. It's easy in here, isn't it? I didn't have to work at anything during worship except how am I going to get off the floor this morning? That was just so vibrant and powerful. But the war is not so much in here. It's out there where our children and our grandchildren are heading seven days a week. Daniel had more than an intellectual ascent. Verses 5 through 7, in case you're still following, reveals that in this humility, they were personally favored when they got to Babylon, but they were not self-seeking. Look in verse number 5. The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that he ate and of the wine that he drank. 
And they were to be educated for three years. Notice that. It was intentional. They had a plan. They, they, they said to themselves, if we can get their minds for three years, we'll own them for the rest of their lives. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So they were being intentionally trained. They were being groomed to become secular theists who would, and ultimately they would ascribe many thoughts to many gods was the hope of Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, the devil doesn't care how many gods somebody worships. He wants you to worship. The devil wants you to worship. He loves worshipers as long as nobody's worshiping Jesus because that's the one thing he could never get for himself. And so as they're moving into this, you see that Nebuchadnezzar's goal was full-scale assimilation into the Babylonian culture. And that's still the goal of the enemy. Friends, the pull of the world is not imaginary, and it's not new. It's not new. I mean, you're, you go back to the time of the apostle John, and he's talking about the lust of the world, the lust, the longing, the pull, the allure, the magnetism. And it varies from culture to culture, but ultimately the argument is that there's something God, it's the same argument Satan employed in, in the garden. He is so unoriginal. Satan has nothing new. All he does is take what God does and he twists it. And so the same thing he told Eve, he says to Eve, hey, you know the reason why he doesn't want you eating of that tree? Because if you eat of that tree, you're going to have something that he doesn't really want you to have. So you, you go ahead and eat it. That's the same lie he's telling our kids today. Hey, you know your parents' Christianity and your grandparents' Christianity. You know how silly that is. You know that that was a, an unenlightened generation. And you know that the gospel is, is just, it's just nonsense. And church is a waste of your time and serving and sacrificing and giving and, and, and entering into all the hoopla and the music and all. And, and Satan just tries to reorient. And, and instead, what he does is he diminishes the glories of the gospel and he accentuates the glories of the world. And what he, what he eventually does is he takes the eternal uh, beautiful results of the gospel and he transposes them and he says no the world will give you that beauty the world will give you that that longing fulfilled the world money sex beauty fame power the world will offer you all of that and then you get very studied professors and and others and by the way let's just go ahead and say it. and our media our media let's just take a, a quick survey here media Pro-biblical Christianity or con-biblical Christianity? And I don't care if you're watching Fox News. They're not going to help you in your walk with Jesus. So it's not about CNN and MSNBC. So all you right-wingers, exhale. I'm going to tell you, man, there, there's no monopoly on, on, on deception. It's not a Republican or a Democratic issue. It, it is ultimately, if we believe what Jesus believed, and Jesus believed in the reality of demonic forces. Paul wrote about the, the strategies of the prince of the power of the air and the demonic host that rules the world, the prince of the world, the ruler of the world. He's engaged. And we don't displace that with a casual Christianity once a week on a Sunday morning. That can get us in intellectually, but, but we're talking about being Daniels. And a transformed life. So let, let's go on. You're saying, please go on. Please. Here's where I, I, I just want to believe in my 
my children's destinies. And Dustin and I, as we serve Newbridge, and we see God moving in our youth, and all the way down to the little children. The little children are getting the word this morning. They're not getting a box of Crayolas and, you know, knowing the art for the 555th time. They're, they're getting the word from the youngest on their level all the way up to uh, coming into the middle school arena. They're getting the word from those that lead them. I want to believe that your destinies will be secured, but I'm going to tell you something. At the risk of sounding a little abrasive, young people, God's not going to make up your mind for you. I'm not even saying make up your mind about Jesus. There are a lot of other issues that are like spokes coming from the hub on a bicycle wheel. A lot of issues that are attached to the core of our Christianity that the world wants to own in your life, wants to reframe your thinking, wants to migrate you away from the truth of God's word and wants you to bow a knee to the secular mindset that is a damnable heresy. Whether it be the sanctity of life I'm appalled now at the amount of Christians who have so moved off of the center point that God is the author of life, and now they've bought into the damnable lie that it's okay to terminate the life of a child. And, and let me tell you something. In the name of Jesus, that is not a political football. That is a moral issue from the Creator. And it doesn't matter to me. I don't care how you vote. That is none of my business. And I'm really sorry that part of the strategy of the enemy is to mute the church on this issue by saying it's primarily, uh, primarily a political issue. My friends, I'm going to tell you something. You get in the presence of God and ask him about it. He's not going to say, well, I don't want to speak to that because it's a political issue. He began that life. Who in the world do we think we are to terminate what God begins? And so, but, but listen, listen, my children's generation across the board is not going to be as dogmatic as my generation. My generation isn't as dogmatic about it as my parents' generation and theirs as, and, and their parents' generation. What's happening? The devil doesn't mind taking his time. He'll just move you off of center a millimeter at a time. He can wait 40 years. He can wait. And, and then he can harness that. What happens? Well, he takes people that are intellectually convinced in a generation, and then he just starts assaulting the intellectual argument until it's no longer a matter of what is right according to the Word of God, but it becomes an, a matter of what is right according to science and individual rights. Now, listen, you may never come back to Newbridge because, of, because I mentioned that, and I'll have to live with that. I hope that's not the case, but what I really hope is that if you don't like that, then you will have the integrity to get in the presence of God and sit there and say, God, give me your heart on this issue of life versus abortion. Just do that. You won't need my arguments anymore. So Daniel was bound by integrity when it was being assaulted. How did he do it? This is a how-to part of the message. First of all, he determined that integrity is a priority. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with what? Well, in this case, the king's food or with the wine that he drank. What is the big deal about that? It's not an issue primarily about the, the Babylonians eating non-kosher food, 
There was certainly nothing in the Mosaic law that prevented or forbade Daniel or Hebrews from drinking wine. It was part of their culture, even part of their worship culture. So it wasn't a teetotaler argument, and it wasn't just a kosher food argument. Let me tell you what I believe. I was meditating on this thought this morning, and I, and I just, the Lord reminded me of a passage of scripture in the, uh, in the book of Proverbs, chapter number 23. And Daniel would have been familiar with this. Daniel lived after Solomon, and Daniel would have known these Proverbs of Solomon. And here's what one of them says in Proverbs 23 in verses uh, 1, 2, and 3, and then verses 6 and 7. This is something Daniel would have had in his soul. What does it say? When you sit down to eat with a king, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Verse 6, do not eat the bread of a man whose eye is evil. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating, eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. So Daniel didn't just have the scriptures in his head. Daniel was governed by God through God's word. And as Daniel is being offered the finest food in the kingdom, it's the king's menu. It's what the king was eating that day. Daniel resolved in himself when his flesh probably cried out for delicious food. When, when, when his, his, his fear might have said, you better not disobey the king. When, when everybody around him, including some of his fellow Hebrew captives, would have been eating that food, Daniel looked within and he said, that's not who I am. I belong to Yahweh. I belong to him. He has been faithful to me. He is my God since my youth. I have lost everything, but I have not lost his love. I have not lost his covenant. I have not lost his presence. I have not lost his favor. And when this pagan king is inviting me to assimilate into the culture that he's orchestrated, Daniel says, I can't do that. You see, he had it within himself. He didn't have his mother or his dad there. Young people, there comes a time where mom and dad are done kind of cordoning you off from the world. You know, half our job when, when you're young is just to keep you alive. To keep you alive and not frequently in jail. That's just kind of like a lot of parents, you know, when the kids move out, their moms and dads are high-fiving. We did it. She only got locked up once, but she's still with us. You know I mean? We're just celebrating. But there comes a time where we can't, we can't put up those parameters, and you have to live it. you got to decide for yourself what you're going to think. And if you don't decide ahead of time because something in your heart has shifted for the Lord toward him, then I promise you, when you come out from under mom and dad's wings, if it's just an intellectual capacity, I promise you, you will get unconvinced. I promise you. Because an intellectual assent to the gospel does not convert the soul. And a converted soul, when thrust into the world, will acclimate to the world. And so Daniel says, I, I just can't do this. And so he pursued, because of that in verse 8, he pursued a course of action that allowed for his integrity to be maintained. Because he had resolved within, what he resolved within started to flow out. By the way, you will live out your convictions. What you're convicted about is what you're living out right now. If you're not convicted about something, you won't live it when there's a price to pay. Daniel was so convicted that he's going to about to do something, he's going to risk it. So he goes to Ashpenaz. He's the chief of the servants of, of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says to Ashpenaz, he says, 
you're bringing all of us the daily ration of wine from the king's kitchen and, and, and the daily spread of food. I, I would like to be exempt from eating that. I, I, I don't want to eat that. Now, my friends, I, we live in such a different time, but that is literally stepping into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar or by picture this way, and it's, it's like putting a noose on your neck and saying, hey, hang me if you want to, don't hang me if you don't want to, but I'm going to put my head in the noose, and I'm just going to say, this is what I believe, this is what I'm asking. And so Daniel risked it. He, he, he was willing to, to suffer for his convictions. He was willing to, to stand out from all of his peers. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I am so drawn to this area over here. That's why I'm, y'all are like, he is ignoring us. This is where so many of our young people are. And I'm telling you that there's so much calling over here. I mean, there's just so much calling on, on this area over here. And the Lord is saying, I'm asking you to step up and to stand out and to remain that way. I'm asking you not to get sucked into the vortex of the world. I'm asking you to represent me in all ways, even to the risk of your own name, your popularity, your passing your exams. I'm asking you to stand out like Daniel did. So Daniel did, and he makes this request, and look what happens. Verse number nine, immediately, his spiritual convictions are countered because he trusted in God when his commitment was challenged. In verse number nine, and down into 10, I won't read those verses, but the eunuch stated, the eunuch is his, it's a terrible thing. I don't even have time to go into it, but he's a literal eunuch. He made himself that way in order to be completely committed to Nebuchadnezzar. It was like the highest level of commitment and trustworthiness in a, in a servant in this pagan kingdom was to make himself a eunuch and say, I have no desire for anything else. I will, I will sing at the, at the king's pleasure. And so when Daniel comes to him, the eunuch says, I don't think you need to do that. And here's why. You're going to make me risk it for you because if Nebuchadnezzar sees you all withered and, and, and you're all scrawny and you're all sunken-cheeked and hollow eyes and, and he sees you looking like you haven't eat, Ashpenaz said, that's going to be on me. And I don't know if I want to risk my neck for you to maintain your convictions. And yet God gave favor to Daniel. Daniel pleaded, came up with a plan. He said, just put us to the test. Let me and my three friends just eat vegetables and water for 10 days. And let all these other guys eat at the king's table. And at the end of those 10 days, let's see who looks more healthy. So 10 days later, you get all the guys and, that had been eating at the king's table and uh, drinking the, the rosé, and now you've got Daniel and his buddies that have been juicing for 10 days. <laughs> and Daniel and his buddies look amazingly fit, even more so. It's supernatural, even more so than the guys that have been eating the, whatever they were eating, everything from the king's table. And so Ashpenaz says, hey, no problem. From this point forward, you live out your convictions. Now, why do I even bother telling you that? Sometimes you have to fight for what you believe in. Sometimes in our generation, if it's not just handed to us, we shrug and then we get theological. Oh, I guess the sovereign God of heaven didn't want it for us. And we're, suddenly we're all Calvinists. Well, I guess God didn't want that for us. God's sovereign. God's in control. No, actually, sometimes God allows you to encounter a succession of walls just to strengthen your faith. Because how many of you know when you bust through walls, you get stronger? 
And so Daniel busted through the wall, and now he's got the king's meal going to somebody else, and he's getting to live out his convictions. And the Bible goes on to say in verses 11 through 16, I'm, I'm just about done. God, Daniel just watched as God amazingly blessed his decision. Daniel starts getting promoted in the kingdom. By the way, he becomes one of the most powerful men in Babylon. And if you know the story of Daniel, it just goes on and on where he's assaulted, he's tempted, he's convicted, he's maligned, he's slandered, he's mocked, (laughs) has this little experience as an old man. Daniel lived it out for years when he was in his 80s. Did you know he wasn't a young buck in the lion's den? He was an old man. He was in his 80s. So he starts out at 15 years old saying, I I resolve within myself, I will be consecrated unto God for the rest of my life. And then he spends the next 55, 65 years being tested on that. And when when he's in his 80s, he's able to sit and lay down in a lion's den just saying, ah, the angel of the Lord will take care of me. (laughs) See, what happens, man, is when you live out your convictions, they grow stronger. You, you, You move in a spiritual kingdom confidence that you don't have when you're a compromiser. You have to start winning the little wars. You have to start saying yes to the things you must say yes to. You have to start bearing the cross of not being applauded or approved or appreciated by a fallen culture. You have to start trusting God with the injustices that have been done to you. And you cannot cop out and say, well, when I tried to do the right thing, it got too hard. Now I'm going to go with the flow on the broad way. And I'm just going to go with the way the world does. Come on. That's not your destiny. Your destiny as the beloved of the Lord is to be able to trust him in the moment because there is no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's what Paul told the church at Corinth. And so... Daniel began doing it as a young person and was able to continue doing it his whole life. He is a picture of integrity. The squeeze never left him, by the way. The squeeze got tighter and tighter on him the further he went in life. I mean, saying no to the king's menu versus spending a night in the lion's den, this is a lot tighter squeeze than this. And yet Daniel had the same consistency and integrity of faith. He wouldn't have had it at 84 if he had not had it at, or had not begun it at 15. You have to begin. And I, I, I will say that one of the words that the Father gave me, I'm, I'm just going to be done. I'm not even, I, I know what time it is, and I'm just going to walk away from my notes. One of the things that the Father showed me a month ago, and it was very crystallized, is that before revival fully hits Newbridge Church, he is calling us each as individuals. You're not gonna, you can't hide behind the church. Each of us as individuals, we are the church. I am the church. You are the church. He's calling each of us to step up our intentional consecration to him. He's going to start convicting us about stuff we haven't been convicted about in years. He's actually going to be ushering you hand in hand to some places in your life, and he's going to show you, this used to be fully surrendered to me, and now you have stepped it back. I want you to step up again. He's going to get tedious with some of us about such things as the language that comes out of our mouth, the movies that come into our eyes and ears. You say, Jeff, you sound like a religious spirit. Listen, I'm not a religious spirit. I'm not a legalist. I've already been delivered from that. What I'm saying is the holy, of, the holy Lord of all is also going to expect his people to be holy. And do you know what the word holy means? It just means separated unto him. That's what consecration is. 
It means separated unto God. And it is very easy for us who have received Jesus Christ, who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, who walk in the gifts of the Spirit, to say, well, I am sanctified and I am consecrated. My friends, you don't get just like a a, a lifelong pass on that when you get it at one point and it lasts forever. He calls us into deeper and deeper consecration. It's not just moral issues. It's not just behavioral issues. It's, it's, It's spiritual consecration. It's about our longings and our hungers and our appetites and our aspirations and our zeal and our joy and our peace. It's what owns our hearts. And so as a loving father, listen, my son's on the front row right now. There's distance between us. But when I'm done doing what I'm doing today, one of the first things I'm going to do is I'm going to embrace my 12-year-old. Why? Because I'm his father. I don't want to just see him. I want to be with him. I want to hold him. I want to be as close as I can be for his good. It's the same way with our heavenly father. He doesn't just want you to, doesn't want to just watch you operate at an ongoing level that you've already mastered. He's calling you deeper. And that deeper is directional and the directional is himward to him. And so because of that, There are things as we move into the blazing light of his glory, there are things that we hold that we'll be dropping. We'll be letting them go. There are other things that will just be burned off of us. He will do it. He will do it supernaturally. Listen, he has taken so much out of me that I didn't have to work at. When he saved me, he in an instant did what Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous could not do for me in a decade. He did it in an instant. He just took it. But that wasn't the last time he stripped me of something that was unprofitable in my life. And I'm here to tell you, the closer I get to him, and the more that light shines on me, and not in a condemning way, but in a very loving, paternal way, when, when the closer you get to him and the brighter his glory is in your life, the more you see that you just need to turn loose of. You see smudges and spots and stains and, and wrinkles, and it's never condemnation for the children. It's never condemnation. It's, it's sanctification. He draws our attention to something that's not profitable, and he says, how about you give me that right now? And it takes faith. Friends, I want to tell you, the worship team, come on up. Just come on up, please. I'll never quit. Just stop. Just, just thank you. I love you back, but some in here are loving them some chilies right now, and they're ready to go. Listen, don't assume that these little things are actually little things. Don't assume when God puts his finger on something and you say, that's silly, that's just a little thing. You don't know what awaits you on the backside of releasing that little thing, even though nobody else around you is releasing it. Young people, You're different because of Jesus. That is a reality. The outflow of that is that you're going to live differently. It's not up here. If it's real, it's in here, and it's permeating everything in your life. That's not just for the college students and the high school students. That's all of us. You're going to have, oh, Jesus. Mm. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the first things he did, he said, Ashpenaz, do away with their old identity. Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, 
Hananiah, those are all Hebrews' names, and in each of them is a reflection on the God. Those names have significance as unto the God of the Jews. And so one of the first things Nebuchadnezzar did said, he said, make sure we get rid of that old identity and let's give them new names. How about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar? Do you know what those names are? Those are names that reflect the God of the Babylonians, the gods of the Babylonians. He wanted to dislodge them from the identity that they had been assigned and to give them a new identity rooted in a, in a damnable kingdom. That's what the enemy is wanting to do to this generation. He's wanting to eradicate the identity that they have in Christ. He, it's not just young people. Listen, those of us that are a little bit older, I'm past the midpoint in my life. Your identity is not the color of your skin. Your identity is not the neighborhood you live in. Your identity is not what you rode up in in the parking lot today. Your identity is not in the handbag that you got at the mall with money you couldn't afford to spend. Your identity is not in the size of your breast, forgive me, or the the narrowness of your waist, or in the ripped abs. I got abs. They're just underneath a 12-pack cooler. Landon tells me I got flabs. That's not our identity. It's not. The enemy... The enemy wants to assign you an inferior identity and then he wants to cheer you on as you live for it and you get to the end of your life and you say, what was that life all about? So there's a lot for us to think about. Where's where's the enemy squeezing you? Where's he pressing you in to his mold? Where's, Where's he trying to just get you to fit in his system? So guard your hearts. Out of that heart flows all the issues of your life. As we enter into a time of ministry, let me say this. Pastor Dustin, especially for those of you that are guests today, Pastor Dustin is going to meet our first-time guest out front. He would love for you to stop by there as you get ready to go. As a matter of fact, we're going to welcome any that feel the need to go at this point, to go on and go. I do feel led to offer up time to minister to anybody who wants to come forward and receive ministry. We have a team of people that will pray with you that will pray over over you if you don't know what to pray. We'll lay hands on you if you need healing in your body. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord or you've become convicted today that yours is an intellectual grasp, but you're sensing in your heart there's never been a true conversion, let us help you with that today. Come forward today. There's help in this house. But as we leave, understand this for all of us. There's a squeeze on our life. You are not indebted to whatever's trying to squeeze you. You're an overcomer through Jesus Christ. Your identity is that you are complete in him. You are accepted in the beloved. That is your standing. But you don't just stand through life. You walk this life out, and that's the flow of who you are. Identity breeds activity. And so as you assess the activity this morning of your life, trace it back. Are you operating according to your identity or the identity that this world and the enemy is trying to assign to you? Would you stand to your feet?